Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For this week's episode, we were honored to speak with Sean Chamberlain. Sean is an author and activist who has been exploring collapse and possible responses for over 20 years. He is the editor of Surviving the Future, Culture, Carnival, and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy, and his late mentor David Fleming's Lean Logic, A Dictionary for the Future and How to Survive It, as well as executive producer of the 2020 film, the sequel, What Will Follow Our Troubled Civilization. He puts the theory into practice as one of the custodians of Ireland's legendary free pub, the Happy Pig, and was involved with the Transition Towns movement since its inception, co-founding Transition Town Kingston and authoring the movement's second book, The Transition Timeline, back in 2009. He was also one of the first Extinction Rebellion arrestees in 2018 and now leads Sterling College's online program, Surviving the Future, Conversations for Our Time. In our interview, we discuss his books, the legacy of David Fleming, his thoughts on the future, as well as his involvement with The Happy Pig. So with that, here's the interview. Great, Sean Chamberlain, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you guys. So for our listeners, just to kind of dive in here, many of them have likely heard of or read either Lean Logic or Surviving the Future, but it would be great to hear a little bit from you about what are those books, how did they come about, and what is your part in them? So... David Fleming is the lead author of those books, and uh, I met him in 2006. Uh, he taught me on a course at a place called Schumacher College, and it was an absolutely transformative life event for me. It was only a two-week course, and at that point, I'd, uh, well, maybe I'll step back. And so in 2005, I'd basically been learning in my spare time, especially about climate change and, and energy issues at that point, 
and I quit my job in 2005 because I was just like, I, I want to engage with this stuff somehow, but what the hell do you do, <laughs> right? Like, right. How, do you, how do you actually engage with this? And friends were saying, oh, you know, you should speak to Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth. Or, and I looked at what they were doing. I thought, nah, that's, that's not really it. And so I, I basically learned to live very cheaply, lived off, you know, didn't get another job, um, lived with my mom, like just, you know, cut back all my expenditures so that I didn't have to get another job, could spend my time, you know, reading the stuff that interested me and harassing interesting seeming people. And after about a year of that, which was quite, quite an uncomfortable year, to be honest, because, you know, my friends were like, well, what are you doing? You know, what, what's your career plan? Like, what, what's this all about? And I, I didn't really have an answer. I just had this sense of, of, of wanting to engage with these issues. Uh, and then, yes, after about a year of that, I heard about this Schumacher College course. And obviously, when you're reading a lot of stuff, there's certain authors who you really vibe with and connect with. And on this course, um, Richard Heinberg was teaching, who I'd been reading a lot at that time. Uh, I think who you interviewed before. Yep. Um, and David Fleming was also teaching Rob Hopkins. Um, so Rob had just come up with the Transition Towns idea and was thinking about that. And David Fleming was the one teacher on the course I'd never heard of. So I sort of looked him up and at the time he was best known for uh, being the guy who invented the idea of carbon rationing. And I read his little booklet that was online and I thought, oh, this is this is interesting and his heart's in the right place, but it'll never work. Um, and so then I met him and basically said that to him and he said, oh, we should have lunch. <laughs> and we had lunch. Uh, and then we had, at the end of that lunch, he said, we should have another lunch. And so, yeah, basically we ended up really connecting and working very closely together on a whole lot of things. but this whole time he was working on lean logic which is his his dictionary for the future and how to survive it and he'd been working on this for at that point about 25 years and although we worked very closely on everything else he never let me look at that book that manuscript um wow. he said we we were we were too close and if if i didn't like it we'd fall out basically because it was so <laughs> close to his heart um and so yeah we worked together very closely for a few years and then in 2010 he died very suddenly uh, without publishing Lean Logic, and I was involved in sort of uh, going through his possessions and sorting out like the stuff after he died because he didn't really have close family, and um, found the final manuscript and figured, well, I guess I'm allowed to read it at this point, and was absolutely blown away by this thing. And um, sort of, as, as a writer myself, thought this is just far more insightful than anything I could write right now. So I think I'm going to give my time to getting this published. And it's, you know, it's in this strange format. It's like a linked dictionary, a bit like Wikipedia, where sort of each 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 entry, whenever there's a word in that entry that has its own entry, there's a little star next to it. And so it becomes like this choose your own adventure path through kind of collapse and the kind of future we could build. But when I was taking it to publishers at the time, uh, they were like, wow, you know, this is amazing content, but it's it's huge and it's in this strange format. And I'm not sure if people are going to know how quite how to grapple with it and so with a couple of friends of David's came up with the idea of this paperback surviving the future culture carnival and capital in the aftermath of the market economy and essentially what I did there was choose one of those potential pathways through lean logic and pull it out into a more conventional sort of read it front to back narrative paperback as a sort of uh gateway drug if you like to David Fleming's writing because I think a lot of people read it and then they really want to get into lean logic and discover the other kind of four-fifths of the content that isn't in surviving the future and, uh, and so that was my plan so I, I w went away and um, 
worked away at that for about a year and produced a manuscript for it without any sort of publisher being on board or anything. Um, and then I took it to Chelsea Green Publishing and showed it to them and they were like, this is really interesting. Um, but what's your thinking around how, you know, the, the original dictionary and this relate to each other? So I sort of told them what I just said to you. And they were like, ah, that'll never work. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> what do you mean? And they said, well, if people read Surviving the Future and then they want to read Lean Logic, which could very well happen, they're going to want it there and then. They're not going to want to come back two years later when we get around to publishing Lean Logic. And I was like, gosh, that actually makes an awful lot of sense. Um, so where does that leave us? And they said, well, actually, we'd like to publish them both now. Um, and I sort of had about 10 seconds of, oh, this is the best thing ever. Rapidly followed by, oh, my God, how much work have I just <laughs> dropped myself into? Yeah. Because the manuscript was far <laughs> from finished. And so, yeah, that's really um, the relationship between the two books. And the content, I would say, um, grew out of, I mean, David Fleming was um, involved in starting what's now the Green Party over in over in this country and in Europe. Um, and he was involved with the early days of things like the Soil Association, which is the Organic Food Growing Association over here and New Economics Foundation. But really, he was he was both a, a historian and an economist. And really, by the late 80s, early 90s, he got to the point of thinking, wow, you know, here we are trying to point out the realities that you and your listeners know well, you know, the ecological calamities that are unfolding on the basis of industrial civilization. But honestly, we're not going to win this argument. You know, I've been banging my head against this wall already for 10 years, and I'm not that excited by doing it for another, <laughs> another 20 years and just being ignored. So what can I do that's meaningful? And basically what he decided to do when he started work on Lean Logic was to say, okay, there's too much cultural and economic and political momentum behind kind of growth and industrial society for it to be voluntarily relinquished, but it's unsustainable and unsustainable things end. That's literally what the word means. So where are we going to end up? Well, we're going to end up in collapse. And so he decided to start writing way back sort of 30, 30 odd years ago about, well, what does collapse look like in practice? What does it make sense to do now to prepare for it rather than avoid it? And certainly we should be doing lots of things to try and avoid it, but we're not going to. So secondly, what might life on the far side of collapse look like or, or as we move through collapse look like? And how do we how do we make sense of that and do the right things in relation to that? And so in many ways, it's a book that that starts where most ecological books end, if you like. You know, most ecological books are kind of we need to change direction otherwise. And then that's the kind of message. Right. And then right. we don't change direction. And so in some ways, I see this as a as a post cautionary tale. It's like, yeah, we've heard all the cautionary tales. Now, this is a tale about what happens after we ignore them. So it sounds like you have been very heavily involved in all of David Fleming's uh, work and, and obviously helping bring these books forward. But you've also been involved in other things, activist groups and, and sustainability practices. How closely would you say your opinions align with those of David Fleming and everything that he wrote? Hmm. Very good question. I mean, the, the short answer is very strongly. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, David was a great friend, like having conversations with him is just one of the great privileges of my life, honestly, because, you know, back in 2006, I didn't have any peer group around this stuff. Um, there wasn't really a lot online about this stuff. And to meet someone and kind of be mentored by someone who had been working 
more broadly in this kind of area for decades, it was the sort of experience where I'd read some amazing article or book and I'd say, David, oh, I just read this great thing. And he'd be like, oh, cool, I'll, I'll ring the author up, we'll have coffee. <laughs> you know, like he, he knew everyone in the world. So that was a joy. And, and I'm sure like my, my take on things was, was heavily shaped by his. But maybe the more interesting thing is to talk about some of the areas where perhaps they don't fully align. And I would say that in terms of climate, I think the science of how catastrophic the implications of kind of unmitigated climate change are, the stabilization of our climate. I think, I think David's take, I mean, given that he died in 2010 and obviously wrote everything he wrote before 2010, um, I think his take was, was more sanguine than mine about like how bad that could be. Sure. Um, that said, I think his proposed ways of addressing it are absolutely the right ones in terms of kind of climate policy. You know, he, he invented this system, tradable energy quotas, that was the subject of a government feasibility study here in the UK. And, you know, in terms of what we can do about it, yeah, I think he's absolutely spot on. But in terms of how bad it might be if we don't, <laughs> then uh, in some ways, yeah, I feel like it's maybe even, even worse than, uh, than David wrote. So diving into some of the topics of the book, um, you talk about this idea of uh, a lean economy and the difference between that and a market economy. And for one of the, the main points of the book is that a slack economy or a lean economy is vulnerable when, when exposed to a market economy, right? So right. Do, do you see any realistic ways for localized economies to be able to isolate themselves from sort of the global economy before what you refer to as the climactric or basically the, the collapse? Uh, well, before is tricky because to my eyes, the collapse is something we're in. Um, to sure. my eyes, we are in a situation where, I mean, you know, quite often I get people coming to me and saying, well, where's your collapse then, mate? You know, things look all right to me. Right. Um, and I think there's a, there's a couple of issues with that question. I think one is the idea that collapse is, is like the single one-off event um rather than this kind of unfolding over decades centuries even but i think also when it comes to collapse what's what's critical uh are the ways that we respond to it is is actually not so much about the physical realities it's more about the stories that we that we tell ourselves the ways that we make sense of what's unfolding so rather than this big collapse i tend to see it more as shrinking circles of affluence you know, and anyone who can still ask that where's your collapse mate question is is still in one of those shrinking circles of affluence, but more and more people aren't, and more and more non-humans aren't, of course. You know, we're decimating the non-human species on our planet, our, our right. kin in that sense. So I think the, the answer to your question about what it makes sense to do now, which is really the important time, does depend to a large extent on, you know, whether you are still inside one of those shrinking circles of affluence or whether you're not, or whether you never were. But I think the fundamental message in, in David's work and in my work is that we've kind of been trained into this idea that money is the place to look for kind of security and safety, right? That the way we responsibly look after our future is by, you know, owning a house or having a pension or, you know, whatever it may be. And even more than that, that our sort of primary responsibility as people in many ways is to be financially independent, right? Like if it's so ingrained in our culture or certainly in the culture as I know 
um, that, you know, if you don't feel like you're financially independent, you probably feel quite shameful about that. You know, you probably you've been told you're, you know, you're a parasite or you're a leech or you're a sponger or whatever, you know, if you rely on your your family or whatever it may be. And I think that is the fundamental shift that's needed, because I would argue that not only is financial independence a questionable thing in terms of its desirability, it actually doesn't even exist, which is a strange thing to say, probably. But like, even if you're a billionaire, someone else still grew your food. Someone else still built your house. Like you're not independent. You're not this superhuman being that just meets all your own needs. You're still dependent. All that money allows you to do is be dependent on people you don't know instead of being dependent on people you do know. And so all the people in your life become replaceable, you know, like, well, fine, if I can't get my food from this place, well, I'll just buy it from someone else. Or if I can't get this service from you, I'll just get it from someone else. And that's why it's often a very lonely and miserable place, actually, being incredibly wealthy, because you feel like, like well, you can't really trust anyone. You don't have deep relationships with people. Um, anyone who is in your life, maybe they're only in it for the money, you know. And so it's, it's to my eyes, one of the core sort of sicknesses of our society is that we're encouraged to spend the majority of the kind of best years of our life striving for financial independence, you know, working our way at whatever job it is, when it's actually not even a desirable place to get to in the end. And so I think what we can do to make things better than they would otherwise be is to move away from that focus on money and focus on the two economies that, that really have supported all, all thriving on earth for all of time and to me the word economy isn't just about money the word economy is about how we meet our needs how do we house ourselves how do we feed ourselves like what do we do with our time that's the broad sense of the word economy yeah. and in our culture the big focus of that question has been money right the financial economy um the market economy and really what the lean economy is about is about grounding our security in the future in our relationships and in the natural world because there are plenty, I mean, there have been people, we'll probably talk about this in a bit, but I run these Surviving the Future Conversations for Our Time courses, and we've had participants from every continent. And we've had several participants on there who've, who've lived through financial collapse, you know, who've lived through hyperinflation, who've lived through not being able to get your savings out of the bank. And they know very well what an unreliable place money is to, to seek your security. And we all know very well that when you fall on financial hard times, what you rely on is, is your relationships. And of course, ultimately on the natural world, which is where all of our food and water and oxygen ultimately comes from. So yeah, all of that said, to come back around to your question, I think the, the place to, the thing to do in these times is to build our security in restoring the natural world and restoring our relationships with each other. And the more that we do that, the less dependent we are on the mainstream market economy. Um, and then the prospect of collapse actually increasingly becomes less something terrifying and even in some ways a relief, like actually this huge market system that's destroying our life support systems might keel over and actually might make more space for the kind of genuinely life-sustaining ways forward that we're pursuing. Um, and so I think the more we move yeah, towards dependence on the things that really support us, uh, the more we become able to kind of widen those cracks in the market economy i mean I, you know this this show is all about collapse it's all about how unsustainable that system is it's all about how those cracks are widening if we live our lives inside those cracks in so doing we widen them but we also are kind of preparing now for what's coming as, as john michael greer likes to say you know collapse now and avoid the rush 
and that, that I think is the key. How do we how do we build systems that support us in preparation for the inevitable fall of the mainstream systems that have been supporting many of us to date? Yeah, I think you make some really great points there, Sean. And one thing that I found really interesting about the book Surviving the Future is that I think most people who would select a book called Surviving the Future, knowing it talks about a post-collapse future, would expect to receive a bunch of tips on preparedness and what skills and gear they need to get and would be surprised to hear all these deep discussions around culture, including like ritual and dance and play. So why do you think so few have put a focus on culture and community? I think because we've been trained out of it by the last few hundred years of human history or not human history, but civilized history. You know, it's it's like I did a project once with Transition Town Kingston going and interviewing the the elders in our community, you know, people in there. 70s, 80s, 90s even, um, and talking to them about, you know, what's changed over the course of your lifetime. And it was it was fascinating to um, hear that. I particularly remember one guy um, talking about this pair of trousers that he'd had for 45 years and was constantly repairing and that he really loved these trousers. And then he said this thing that really stuck with me, but, but of course I bought those before they invented fashion. <laughs> and uh, And so I think, you know, there's a certain amount we can learn from our elders, but the problem we've got is that even they lived within the market economy. Like, so it's actually not really within living memory anymore, the way that human beings survived for the great majority of our history. I mean, depending on where you draw the lines, you know, Homo sapiens has been around for two or 300,000 years. Uh, the market economy has been around for two or 300 years. So, you know, like 0.1% of human history. And yet to us, it's normal. Like it's actually the most abnormal moment in the whole history of the planet, arguably. But to us, it's normal. And so I think in a lot of ways, we've been we've been training ourselves out of all the skills that we need. Um, and the the ideology of the market economy, of course, is, you know, the, the kind of sole rational human going through life, deciding who to trade with and, you know, being their own personal superhero. And, you know, the whole kind of globalized culture led in many ways by the US is all about that cult of the individual. And so it's very predictable in that sense that when you take a bunch of people from that culture and tell them collapse may be approaching or unfolding, they immediately come up with some quite individualistic stories about how they might respond to that. Um, and so in many ways, yes, I think David Fleming's work is uh, attempting to be something of an antidote to that or an alternative to that in that. You know, he, as a historian, uh, <laughs> well, maybe I'll explain how he became an economist, which is that he, um, as I mentioned, was involved in the early days of kind of ecological campaigning and noticed that the problem they always faced when they ran up against power was that it was always the economists who said, oh, well, you know, you can't really do that. You've got to trust in the markets and all of this. Um, and so he decided to go and get a PhD in economics just so that he could kind of meet these arguments on their own ground and, uh, and challenge Very nice. them. Um, but his background before that was as a historian. So then the very natural question came to him, well, how did societies thrive before the last two or 300 years of this growth-based market-based paradigm? And it became very clear to him that the answer was, was culture fundamentally. Um, like how, how do we exist in the absence of things like full-time unemployment and economic growth? Well, we exist by actually caring about each other and supporting each other and having meaningful relationships in exactly the kinds of ways that that financialized economy sort of 
eats away at you know genuinely relying on each other and again as i say all of us know this from experience when when money isn't there to support you you fall back on your relationships and so yeah really what he's proposing is is not some crazy new idea really what he's saying is let's do the the only thing that's actually worked you know let's the mad idea is to base our our future well-being on the ideas that have led us to the point of global economic and ecological collapse in the space of a couple of hundred years when other cultures have lasted for tens of thousands you know and so yeah i think that's the uh that's the reason why we get such individualistic kind of responses in the mainstream and uh, as you say I, I think it could be said to be not entirely unintentional that people might pick up the book with one expectation and then be be led in another direction because probably it's the people with that expectation who could most use hearing about some some different ideas um not because they're kind of you know right or holy but just because i think individualism is is a poor horse to back in the times we're moving into so there's a couple things i really liked about surviving the future so it feels like in a lot of books out there you either get ideas about what the future is going to look like from an economic standpoint you know things like degrowth and they, they might go into some details there and then in other books you get an idea of community and the importance of community and I really like that this book and, and David's idea here is that they're one and the same, basically, but that the book goes so far into what the economy actually could look like and how it could function, you know, into details about um, how many hours per day people would work and, and how that could work. That type of thing was really impressive to me. Um, and then, like you've been saying, just the absolute importance of relationships and trust and carnival and all these things with with community that are so important and necessary um you mentioned earlier that there's basically a change in the way that we're thinking that is required in order for this to happen we are so ingrained in the market economy in capitalism we think that that's all that there is and that it's the best way and that's the way that the world operates um so it really feels like maybe the big task here is educating and as we kind of move through the transition because we completely agree that collapse is happening now and that collapse will happen over the course of decades that it's a, a sort of a slow decline so that transition as it happens slowly over time do you feel like just education and, and reminding people of what the past is like is that the key component towards making a, a change or what, what is required for that transition to happen smoothly? Because, sorry, I'll just say one more thing here. The book talks about how this is one scenario of the future, right? Mm. The, the lean economy and, and the slack economy, that's, that's a scenario, but it's not necessarily what's going to happen. There's a lot of ways that it could go even worse than it is now. So how do we, how do we initiate that transition and, and make sure that it happens the way that you envision it? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd say I'm I'm quite sure it won't happen the way that I or anyone else envisages it. Um, if there's one thing you can say for sure about, was it um, Yogi Berra said predictions are hard, especially about the future. And, you know, I think if I had to sum up my vision of the future in one word, it would be diverse. You know, the, there are a whole lot of stories going to be continuing to unfold on this planet. You know, there's an awful lot of places and people. And... You know the vision that that david laid out i would uh, well, certainly the scenario that he most talks about in the book was really his attempt to say what's the most positive scenario i can come up with 
given where we are or where we were, you know, because he was writing this 10, 20 years ago. And, you know, there's an Irish saying, um, oh, you're trying to get to Tipperary. Well, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I think the leading educator for us all is going to be reality. You know, I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who aren't going to be very interested in any of these ideas uh, until it becomes incredibly apparent to them that the stories we've been told about what the future is going to look like don't lead to the futures they tell about. You know, like the techno-utopian world sounds a lot nicer than the collapsed world. I can see why people would rather choose that. But the problem sure. is, of course, that believing in that story doesn't lead to that future. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's not so much in order for this to happen. It's more how do we, if, if, if we see this vision of the future as being a more desirable one, as I do, um, and I see I see David's vision being less about what we stand to lose and more about what we've lost already actually and could regain you know the the things that he's talking about are actually the things that we miss so much in our culture today that you know the close relationships and the time for music and parties and community and conviviality and joy like so much of that is gone already um that it's actually like how do we i mean a bit like a, in a way a parallel i've not thought of this before but a parallel to you know the rewilding movement where it's like well let's let's move away from thinking about like how do we slow down the rate at which we're losing everything how do we actually start rebuilding the things that we want you know how do we actually make this a positive movement towards something rather than just a, a you know resistance kind of away from something and so yeah i think in many ways it's it's not how do we make this happen globally it's more about how do we make more of this happen as we move forward and as I say, for me, a lot of that is about, um, yeah, is about rebuilding the economies that are going to have to support us after the mainstream financial economy ceases to. And yes, I think education is a is a key part of helping people see why they might want to do that. And obviously, that's a big part of why publishing these books seemed something worthwhile for me to do with my time. Um, and also, actually, I listened recently. You you interviewed a friend of mine, Michael Resel. And I listened to that episode and I was I was very struck in that because he was saying, you know, the the critical importance of connection and community because, you know, he's doing things like moderating the collapse subreddit. And I know myself, like back when I was first learning about this stuff, there's nothing worse than feeling like you're alone with the apocalypse, right? Like just right. you're the only person there researching this and nobody around you has a clue. And I'm sure that's a big part of why why you guys do what you do. It's about like, how do we create some sense of community about this? And how do we, you know, my work goes under this name of dark optimism. And I often find that people are very frustrated because they really want to talk to their friends and family about what do we do, <laughs> you know, in the context of all of this. But you try and have that conversation with someone who doesn't know the dark you know the dark bit um and you become the doom guy right they're like oh god here you go again talking about all these terrible <laughs> collapse scenarios and you're like yeah but what i want to do is have the conversation about what do we do in response to these difficult realities but until we you understand what the difficult realities are we we can't have that conversation absolutely um and so yeah really i think yes education but not necessarily in a you know let's transform mainstream education kind of way um, maybe more in a, you know, in a way that we can actually do it in a way that's like creating spaces where people who are aware about this stuff can come together, communicate, share fears, share grief, and then often on the far side of that grief kind of wake up and go, okay, like, actually, I've, I've sort of cried my tears about this now. So 
what do I do? You know, like actually I'm alive. I have to decide what to do with my day. Uh, what path is there forward, which is neither any of the various flavors of denial, which remain, which range from head in the sand through to, I'm just going to stay really busy, which I think is where a lot of activists end up. Like, I don't believe we can win this, but I just have to keep trying because not winning is, is so overwhelmingly terrifying. I've just got to keep busy. Both of those, I think, are flavors of denial, but there are parts which are neither denial nor despair. Um, which is like, okay, I see these extremely challenging realities. Possibly, you know, if I could give my life to change them, I would, but I can't. So how do I make things better than they would otherwise be? And I think that's the really interesting conversation. And that's what I now try and sort of hold spaces to where that kind of conversation can happen. Yeah, and I think that resonates a lot because we talk all the time about doing what's within our control and making the impact that we can not falling into total despair about the situation and still finding paths of action. When we talk about building community, one thing that uh, the book speaks about is that you can't have community without culture. And yet so many aspects that are highlighted about culture are just things that evolve naturally. And so which aspects of culture do you think can be deliberately built and which aspects just have to happen organically? Mm, great question, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a line in the book about um, we have a timing problem. <laughs> you know, culture takes time to build and we need it yesterday. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was just thinking about this earlier, actually. There's, um, as an aside, which we'll lead round to your question. Um, so there's a, there's a free version of, of Lean Logic online now, uh, leanlogic.online which was built by a fan of the book and and with the publisher's blessing made freely available which is which is a wonderful resource and in there are a few parts where i've added um sort of little videos or things which i think speak particularly to particular entries and um in the carnival entry of lean logic online there's a link to a, a carnival that was actually only started in 2010 the year david fleming died on shetland which is a little island range north of scotland and it's just the most inspiring and beautiful thing. As, as I say, if you go to leanlogic.online slash carnival, you can watch this 10 minute video. And basically the, the people there have um, sort of Viking heritage. And so they created this community carnival based around their Viking heritage. And it's glorious when you see the kind of culminatory celebration of them all sort of marching through the dark with their flaming torches and this huge Viking ship with and each year a, a Jarl is suggested who's the kind of central figurehead of the whole the whole piece and and this little 10 minute video talks about how it's just pulled the whole community together because all year round just like David talks about in the book you need you need something interesting going on you know a culture needs something to participate in something to be part of something to be excited about to look forward to and very often, uh, you know, all of the places those instincts are pointed in the mainstream culture are consumerist, right? It's like, oh, I can't wait for Christmas and like, oh, let's try and buy all the best stuff. But this is very much more participatory. You know, everything that's um, part of that is is built. You know, this Viking longship was built over the year and loads of people are employed to do it. And, you know, it's it's a it's a yeah, a centerpiece. And in the in the context of your question, what's so interesting about that for me is that it it didn't exist 15 years ago you know it was just a bunch of people came together and said 
let's do this. <laughs> um, and uh, I'd also, if people are interested in that, point you at Rob Hopkins' wonderful book uh, about imagination from what is to what if, uh, which is all about, you know, how do we how do we do this? Like, how do we, because another of the problems we face in our culture is that in many ways, we've seen this incredible deadening of the imagination, you know, with this real sense of kind of grim reality and, you know, the parameters of what's really realistic kind of shrinking down and down and down. I guess on a personal note, one of the, the biggest things for me that's sort of made rekindling some of this stuff possible has been on a very personal level, like reducing my dependence on money, um, as I mentioned, you know, 2005, quitting my last sort of proper job and learning to live very cheaply. And there are a bunch of very specific skills to learning to live cheaply. And, and most of them involve relationships and other people. And I had never really encountered any of these ideas at that point. Um, and it was only a couple of years after publishing Surviving the Future, actually, that I went, huh. Yeah, this actually kind of maps onto my lived experience. Um, that the more I've personally stepped away from meeting my needs with money, the more it's created space and time in my life. Because I then no longer have to sell my hours just in order to exist. I can give my hours to whatever seems to me to be the most exciting and meaningful and purposeful thing I can do with that time. And that's led me on some incredible adventures. And it's led me to, yeah, helping to to rebuild kind of community and 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 you know for example being involved with this ecological land cooperative which helps people access land so that they can live the kind of small-scale farming life and yeah it's it's just in many ways i would say the the key to surviving the future is finding that which you most deeply enjoy and resonate with and believe in and finding ways to give as much of your time as possible to that um and they may not be the the, the kind of you know there's this whole thing isn't there around um you know find a job that you love and then you'll never work a day in your life i'm like but, but does it have to be a job like is, is that assumption still have to underpin that can't it just be like find the thing you love doing then work out how you're going to meet your needs and don't assume that you're going to meet them with money then i think you're yeah really building the new culture through your day-to-day -day existence and i think one of the problems, you know, as someone who's been involved with sort of environmental activism in the broad sense of the word for a long time, <laughs> I, I often think it's really uninspiring, you know, a bunch of people coming together to say how doomed we are and how we should give up everything and how, you know, just like they couldn't enjoy themselves in a vegan chocolate factory, you know, and <laughs> um, and I think to to actually find a way of life that you genuinely love it's so much more compelling, you know, like people often come to me and be like, you actually seem a lot happier than anyone else I know, like, what's your secret, you know? And then I'm like, well, actually, it's kind of come from giving up capitalism, <laughs> if you like. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think the key is building lives we really love. And I think for those of us who are aware of collapse, we can't do that if it's through denial. You know, we have to know that this is in the light of what we know. And consequently, it looks like building something that that makes sense that it might have a future. And and based on on David's work, I think that means community and conviviality and joy and and the natural world. So on the topic of building all those things and actually working towards that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about a project that you've had going for a while now called the uh, the Happy Pig? I believe is that right? <laughs> that is right. Yeah. So. Um, so this is uh, 
very much connected with my my best friend Mark Boyle. Uh, we met uh, at the first Dark Mountain Festival, which I think was about 2010, and he was kind of looking at the whole global mess. And he back then kind of came to the conclusion of, well, pretty much everyone I know who's doing something they don't believe in, they're doing it for money. Um, and so he started really exploring money. And then one of his friends said to him, God, if you've got such a problem with money, why don't you just stop using it? And he thought, well, actually, you've got a point. <laughs> so he um, so he decided to live without money for a year and write a book about it. Um, so he, he went cold turkey on money. Uh, and that's that book's called The Moneyless Man, and I very much recommend it. But then we met just as he was coming to the end of that year. And I had this sort of background in community activism, and I was really inspired what he was doing. And he was getting a load of messages from people after his book came out saying, I want to live like this, but like, where can I do it? Like, how can I find some land? He, he basically found a farmer who let him park a caravan on his land and uh, in exchange for a little bit of help at harvest time. And, um, and so we started plotting together about maybe creating some kind of moneyless community, some kind of place where people could come together and exist in that way. And yeah, that's a whole long story, but eventually it led us to uh, this little three and a half acre piece of land in the west of Ireland. Uh, and there we have, um, so Mark has now actually given up electricity altogether because uh, he basically nobody's ever told him how you build a solar panel without an industrial civilization. And nobody's told him how you have an industrial civilization without destroying the natural world. So until someone does, he decided he doesn't want to be off grid, he wants to be off electricity. And so he has built himself a little cabin on the land uh, and he lives there without running water or electricity. And then also on the land, we've got this hostel called the Happy Pig, um, which is a, a sort of free pub and hostel where people can come and stay for free and um, just a place where people can exist without needing to find money, you know, like you find money to pay your rent or your mortgage or whatever, like in many ways, we're the only species on the planet that isn't allowed to just build itself a home and live in it. You know, it's, it's amazing how we consider ourselves this incredibly free creatures. And yet we've really tied ourselves in knots here. Um, and so the happy pig, yeah, it's a place where people can come and just experience a place where nobody's asking you for money for anything and, you know, just come and hang out. And there's an amazing library there and a table tennis table and a dartboard and a, a wood burner. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a, joyous place and then there's a small community of us kind of living around that and we don't all live without electricity like there's electricity in the pig but yeah we're all in in our different ways very interested in exploring what it would be like to well yeah minimize our dependence on the mainstream culture and there's a lovely line actually and so mark most recently wrote a book called the way home tales from a life without technology and there's a line in there which i adore which is Despite knowing nothing of the bloody, mucky realities of land-based lives, techno-utopians will warn you not to be, to, be, to be careful not to romanticize the past. On this I agree, and I know it firsthand, but be far more careful of those who romanticize the future. And I think that's, you know, really the thing at the moment is that we've got this story of what the future looks like, which is so wildly different from the actual consequences of our present. Um, you know, we have this idea that we're on the cusp of exploring the stars and living forever and actually our life support systems are collapsing under us. And so, yeah, the Happy Pig is a place where we're trying to put in place, put into practice some of the some of the theory really about what it looks like to live in a way that's really dependent on on the land and the wilderness around us and um, on each other and where money doesn't get much of a looking. 
And one other thing I'd say, actually, is it sounds really radical and out there to modern ears. But in many ways, I think we're just rekindling the ancient tradition of hospitality. You know, like people can come and stay like that's all it is. And I think that only sort of fell out of fashion, if you like, because of the age of mass tourism. Like it's fine to put up strangers when they turn up at your door when three happen by every year. But when 100,000 do, it's just not possible. And so it all gets arranged in a in a money based way instead. And so, yeah, I just I think that in many ways we see this as a kind of um, a rediscovery of ways of life that have made sense for a very long time rather than just some, yeah, out there craziness. And it's fun to hear about. Um, I love, <laughs> yeah, I love hearing that there are these efforts to get back to what matters and experiment with different ways of living and trying to to practice what's being preached in this kind of a sphere. My understanding is you are also involved in another project called the Deeper Dive. Could you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. So that's um, that's part of a program uh, I've run in partnership with Starlitz, sorry, Sterling College in Vermont. So we have this program called Surviving the Future Conversations for Our Time, and that sort of grew out of the popularity of the Surviving the Future book. Um, a lot of people were like very interested to kind of talk more about these kind of ideas and encounter others who were inspired by the book. Uh, and so I think three or four years ago, um, we first set up this kind of online course slash community. It was an eight week course people could join. And it just, oh, actually, yeah, that first course was two and a half years ago because it was uh, it was April 2020. We launched it after a couple of years of prep, which just so happened to be as COVID was kind of shutting the world down. And so we were expecting maybe 30 people and we got 300 people signing up in two weeks, partly, I think, because people were so, so much at that time, suddenly looking for things to do online. And really, it's a space where, you know, there's, there's a kind of online forum and a kind of continual conversation happening there between the participants. And then I invite in guests, probably the same similar kinds of guests that you might invite onto your show. And they kind of fertilize the conversation and really, yeah, it's about the kind of conversations we're having now. Like, what does it, what does it make sense to do in these times? And over the last few years, that, that kind of offering has evolved. And so there's now a, a kind of self-directed course called, um, a path through tumultuous times, which is available all year round. Um, and people can work through it completely in their own time, whatever, whatever schedule they've got. And then once a year, uh, we run this thing called the deeper dive, as you mentioned, which is a an eight week live course. And that, that is now a course specifically for people who've already read Surviving the Future. And so, as I mentioned before, often it's hard to get to the conversation you really want to have because you have to kind of get your conversation partner up to speed before you can have it. I mean, you do know this very well. Okay. And, um, and so the idea there is like, okay, there's, you know, enough people in the world who've read Surviving the Future now that we can come together and not have to kind of go over all of that again, but have that as a kind of shared baseline. But then still, I mean, uh, <laughs> by gosh, we're facing some impossible dilemmas today. You know, there, there are no, there are no easy solutions. In fact, I'd say there are no solutions to the times we're living in. I'm sure you've talked before about the difference between problems and predicaments. And, you know, we're facing a whole lot of predicaments, um, like the fact we're going to die. It's not something you solve. It's something you come to terms with and decide how to relate to. And because there are no easy solutions, I think there are an awful lot of fertile conversations to be had. Um, one of my favorite lines from David Fleming's work is, do nothing that matters without consulting a conversation. And that was my kind of inspiration in the surviving future conversations for our time. 
And so now we have a, a bit of a community that's built up around this. We have, a, uh, as I say, this online forum that's quite active and we have monthly gatherings where maybe 25 or so people turn up and we kind of share what we've been doing over the past month. And then we go into little breakout rooms and discuss amongst ourselves. Um, well, whatever, whatever we want to, I don't know what they will talk about in the various breakout rooms. And, um, and so, yeah, in, uh, in January, from January 9th, we'll be doing the next annual, uh, deeper dive and oh, I'll have to see if I can remember them all now, but our, uh, our invited guests for that this year are, um, Nate Hagens, uh, Rob Hopkins, Vandana Shiva, Tim to Christopher, Stephen Jenkinson, Sherry Mitchell, Mark Boyle, my good friend, and um, Issa Frameau, who lives at the ZAD in the south of France, in the north of France, which is a particularly inspiring project to me. And so essentially what this is, is for all those of us who are looking at our times and wondering what on earth do we do, um, emphasis on the we, let's invite a bunch of people who I think are walking paths through these times that make some kind of sense. Um, very diverse, you know, some people have like, you know, Mark's kind of withdrawn from kind of technology and, and living in a way with nature. You know, Vandana's quite an activist. Issa's kind of created this very radical uh, community, or not created, but is part of this very radical community that have been kind of actively resisting the French state trying to build the new airport. Um, you know, Nate's more doing kind of analysis and sharing that with the world. So these are, and I think all of us in ourselves have these impulses, you know, like some, there's part of us that would like to just go away and be a bit of a hermit and just have, have nothing to do with it all. And there's part of us that wants to kind of educate and spread the word. And there's, you know, part of us that are just, I mean, Stephen Jenkinson talks a lot about kind of grief and, and the, the emotion of this time and how we process that. Um, and so what I find is, is really valuable is hearing conversations between these different people, because then in many ways they are particularly eloquent versions of the different parts of ourselves, if you like, um, and you get to hear them talk to each other and gen and it really varies, but of, of the participants in the courses of which we've had many hundreds now, you know, people usually find they really resonate with, you know, what this person's saying or what that person's saying or, or this particular critique of that person or whatever it may be. And it's really helpful in working out what, what our particular path might be, because no matter how hopeless some aspects of the the global predicament might appear again you know we're still here and we still got to decide what we're going to do with our days even if it's just you know crying in the corner um and uh and i think ultimately yeah let's let's try and tell stories with our days that we're proud to tell because what has any human being ever had to do with their time than that you know there's absolutely nothing about our times that prevents us from making things better than they would otherwise be um, and actually, I'm just at the moment reading um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which is quite a famous book um, about his experience of without hyperbole, literally living through Nazi concentration camps and the meaning and purpose that can be found even there. And so I, I often think, you know, when we're tempted to kind of despair, in a way, it makes me a bit embarrassed then to think about his experiences and think, well, who the hell am I to even be, you know, thinking about despair in the face of this, like actually the natural world's still here and it's still beautiful and you know those of us listening to this certainly still have some some time and some resources and some friends and some ability to create beauty and magic and well that's what life's for eh so you know let's let's come together find some allies and 
do some cool shit, huh? Like do some stuff that makes people smile, that makes them go, wow, that's that's really awesome. Because yeah, what else is life for? <laughs> so why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners who might be interested in the deeper dive, um, what can they do to sign up? Where can they go to find more about it? Sure. So the, uh, I mean, I guess you'll have some kind of notes or something, so I can certainly send you the direct link, but um but yeah, I mean, if you just uh, use your favorite search engine and look for Surviving the Future, the Deeper Dive, it's run through, as I say, Sterling College, which is S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G. Um, you'll find it pretty easily. And one thing I should definitely mention is, you know, given that the whole thrust of everything I do is around the kind of the, the non-monetary economy, the gift economy, the informal economy, there are various names for it. Try to make as many of these materials as possible freely available and certainly make sure that finances aren't an obstacle to anyone uh as i mentioned lean logic is now in a completely free version online lean logic online although i also recommend the physical book because it's a genuinely beautiful physical artifact but um but the content is completely free and and complete online and then with the courses um in those i've partnered with you know a mainstream college sterling college so they do have some financial overheads but what we've done is we've tried to Again, make sure there are no financial obstacles. So it's it's priced on a on a sliding scale system. So the the full price to participate in the deeper dive, if you can afford it, is five hundred ninety nine US dollars. You can just choose straightforwardly with a button to pay down to two hundred ninety nine dollars. And then for anyone for whom that is also a financial obstacle, and you know we've had participants from literally every continent on Earth. We even had a, a, a research scientist based at an Antarctic research station. <laughs> so you know we've had people from literally all over the world, uh, and obviously for some with exchange rates and things for people in some parts of the world, fifty dollars or two hundred ninety nine dollars is, is is still more than they could afford. Uh, and so we have a scholarship system. And so basically, as you'll see when you go to the the deeper dive page. If you scroll down to the bottom, there's a little scholarship form you can fill in and you don't have to prove your poverty or prove your worthiness or anything else. It's just it just literally asks you why you want to do the course, how you think you'll benefit from it um, and what you would like to pay. Um, and you can just choose. And um, basically, we've managed to get some funding in from people who support this work that we're doing to you know, be able to offer it in that way. Um, and so yeah hopefully nobody finds that they're unable to do it because of financial reasons um that's absolutely yeah been my intention so yeah hopefully that uh that helps anyone who's who's worried about that side of it well sean this has been an incredible conversation i feel like we have learned a lot from you um and from david fleming and his legacy and his work i uh, really appreciate you coming on for us today I guess I'll give you the opportunity. Is there anything else that you want to plug or is there, you know, how can our listeners find more about you or get involved in any of your projects? Sure. I mean, my website is darkoptimism.org. Um, you'll find details there on well, everything we've mentioned and more, everything I've been involved in over the years. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else I'm, I'm particularly desperate to plug. I just really want to, I guess, encourage people to live wholeheartedly i think would be my closing words you know i think that it's amazing when we commit to hearing all the little voices in ourselves where it leads us you know when if you know deep down in your heart that oh i'm doing this thing and i, I really i don't believe in it you know hear that and see that not as a a niggling discomfort but as a as a friend 
you know, as a friend that's kind of calling you to being all that you want to be, whatever that is, you know, different people, you know, it might, different people's priorities are different. Like your highest priority might be just raising a beautiful family or, or helping your country or like helping your locality through these times or just enjoying every moment as much as you can or whatever it is, but whatever your deepest truth is, you know, tell that story with your days. Cause um, I think it was, um, Howard Thurman, one of Martin Luther King's mentors, who said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive. And like, yeah, I just want to see more crazy people doing amazing things because it's what they really want to do with their time. And I think our culture has been so amazingly good at repressing that in us. Like so amazing, like be all of you. And I look forward to hearing about what you get up to. Beautifully said, thanks so much, Sean. Pleasure guys. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.